Kaladesi Island is as close to a tropical desert island as you can find in the state of Florida. We'd spent the morning traveling westbound toward the island, crossing north of Dunedin as the Gulf of Mexico came into view. Kaladesi is a unique experience, especially if you are a state park completionist like myself. You can check off two parks at the same time when you go to Kaladesi Island. You have to pass through a different state park to even reach the ferry to get to Kaladesi. Honeymoon Island State Park is right to the north, and a century ago, they were actually one complete island. Originally, the island was called Hog Island, and it sat just north of modern-day Clearwater, a long, gorgeous barrier island right on the Gulf of Mexico, easily accessible by boat. When a hurricane blasted the Gulf Coast in 1921, it perfectly carved a path right through the middle of Hog Island, leaving a clean channel between the two. The northern island would eventually be called Honeymoon Island, and the southern island is now called Kaladesi. Honeymoon Island was named as such because a businessman in the 1940s promoted the island to newlyweds. Kaladesi, however, has a more complicated name origin. A woman named Myrtle Scherer Betts was born on Kaladesi in 1895 and wrote about her life on the island. She wrote in one of her books that her father said Kaladesi meant beautiful bayou. The New York Times, however, says, quote, others say the Spanish ones called it Cayo or Islet de Caldiz after a fisherman who had a camp there in the late 18th century, end quote. Both islands are a huge draw on the Gulf Coast, evident by the multiple booths at the entrance to Honeymoon Island, taking fares from throngs of cars entering. This is the most crowded I've ever seen an entrance to a state park, maybe anywhere in the state. Something told me everyone was following the same call, heading for the singular experience of reaching the island you can only go to by boat. Sure enough, my partner Robin and I piled onto a ferry launch set amongst a huge mangrove forest alongside dozens of other guests. Captain Joe would lead us on his ferry to Kaladesi. The captain welcomed a kid to help him drive the boat, coincidentally also named Joe, and we took off for the southern island. Cutting east, sending waves towards the causeway, Captain Joe told us to keep our eyes open as dolphins are often seen out in the waters. Soon, the boat cut into the waterways around Kaladesi, and after taking a sharp turn, we arrived at the dock. Every visitor has a four-hour limit on the island. Your ticket notes your return time. We hopped off, took a quick walk through the Saul Palmetto scrubs around the island, and emerged onto the beach we had come here seeking out. What we found was beautiful sand and gorgeous green-blue water, mangroves and palm trees in a wall behind us, and quiet waves lapping the edge of the island. A few visitors anchored their boats offshore, staring out to the ocean beyond them. Folks strolled by us with friendly greetings exchanged. The sun was hot, but a cool wind drifted over the gulf, and all around us, folks gathered along Kaladesi's famous shores and spent a beautiful Sunday morning taking in the stunning views from an isolated spot along our gulf coast. But I have found myself on a lot of beaches in the last few months, searching out what they have in common and what stands them apart. They're iconic to our identity as a state, and many agree we have some of the best beaches in the country. In fact, I had never heard of Kaladesi Island State Park until it was recommended by arguably the foremost expert on what makes the best beaches in the United States. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. 
Three years ago, on July 27th, 2018, the very first episode of Wait 5 Minutes debuted. It's been a wonderful, exciting three years, and to celebrate the anniversary and this summer season we're in, I've decided to go in-depth on Florida's most popular natural attraction, our beaches. What makes our beaches so unique? What creates the anatomy of a beach? Why are humans always drawn to our shores? All that and more in a special anniversary episode. Before we get into the episode, I want to tell you about our sponsor for this week's episode of Wait 5 Minutes. This episode is sponsored by A Trombo Creative. A Trombo Creative is owned and operated by my dear friend of over a decade, Annie. Annie has been designing and costuming professionally for six years and even did costumes for yours truly throughout my years in theater. Through close collaboration, cohesive design, and hands-on fittings, together you and Annie can create the perfect costume for your production, cosplay, special event, or photo shoot. She turns your ideas and inspirations into a wearable reality. You can check out more of her work on Instagram at atrombo.creative, and you can book your appointment at her website, atrombocreative.com. Dot com. There are links to both of those in the description. Thank you to A Trombo Creative for sponsoring this episode and season of Wait 5 Minutes. Alright, let's start this episode with a difficult task. Let's define a beach. It's not as easy as you would think, especially in Florida. I have visited a few gorgeous beaches in the last several months of my travels. While in Jupiter visiting the lighthouse on the inlet, I went to John D. MacArthur Beach State Park, a lovely park accessible by a long boardwalk over an estuary. The waves were huge and the wind was quiet. I was one of the only few visitors out there. It's rare to find that sort of thing nowadays. I peered out to the flat-packed beaches that race cars once flew down on the Atlantic coast along Daytona, where waves have created perfect surfing conditions for decades. Along Sanibel Island earlier this month, the waves were so gentle you almost didn't feel them, and the water was warm, full of shells that were unloaded onto the beach. And, of course, there's the isolated shores of Caledesi Island with its incredible forests all around it. These beaches aren't tremendously far from each other. You can get from one to another in a single day car ride, no matter which one you're starting at. We're all on the same peninsula, but our beaches are totally different all around the state. There's good reason for that. The sand, of course, is a great place to start. Sand comes in many forms around the world. Pebbles and stones frequently make up beaches in Europe, and in Hawaii, volcanic ash mixes to create their iconic black sand beaches. On Florida's Gulf Coast, our sand is old. Some of it is made of granulated white quartz crystal that was eroded off the Appalachian Mountains thousands and thousands of years ago. The fine crystals then flowed toward the Gulf and washed up along our edges, creating the iconic bright white beaches, from the Emerald Coast on the Panhandle to the shores of the 10,000 Islands. The Atlantic coast, on the other hand, does have some white quartz beaches, but also has loads of darker beaches made up of more river runoff, meaning there's more eroded stone and broken up seashells in the composition. That makes the sand darker, tanner, and less crystal white, but certainly essential to our ecosystem. In addition, waves differ depending on the coast you're on. The Gulf Coast, for example, is known for its beautiful, calm waves, while the Atlantic has been a draw for surfers for the past century. 
The reason is fairly simple. The Gulf of Mexico is literally a smaller basin with an unusual shape to it, so the waves don't ripple through the ocean as intensely, creating a smaller return on the shores. This affects the tides as well. The Gulf has irregular tide patterns because of its shape. Tides are literally just the gravitational pull of celestial bodies like the moon around our planet's orbit, which leads to the ocean rising and falling along coastlines just like a wave. In the Gulf, the tides may come in pairs, going high and low twice a day, but sometimes just going high and low once. That's unusual. On the Atlantic, however, tides are more consistent with two highs and lows every day and waves that grow in size as they travel across the ocean. Because of that, Atlantic coast waves are large. They crest higher and harder, and they are way more attractive to excited surfers. That being said, the Pacific, all the way across the country, is nearly double the size of the Atlantic, meaning the waves there travel further, catch more wind, and grow to create those incredible tunnel waves you see in places like California or Hawaii. But it's more than that for our Florida beaches. Sand variation and wave size and tidal patterns and shell consistency are just a few factors that go into distinguishing our beaches from one another. There is so much more. Luckily, our guest this week has made a very long list to qualify our beaches. Now, I must admit, I talk to a lot of smart people for this show, and one of the great joys of my interviews on a day-to-day -day basis over the last three years is that every once in a while I get to ask a very simple elementary question to a very, very smart person. You know the rule, no dumb questions. I take that very seriously. I ask the dumb questions. And I got to ask such a question to our guest this week. Well, can, uh, this is going, I hope this isn't too elementary of a question. It's, I'm asking a very simple question, but uh, from a very, uh, imagine someone has never encountered a beach in their life. They don't know what a beach is. How would you describe a beach? Not just in a, you know, uh, from a personal standpoint, but even from a scientific standpoint, like what is a beach? Okay. Well, simply a beach is an accumulation of sand accumulated by waves piled upon the shore. And so a beach can be made out of any material. We always think about being sand, but it could be, if you go to England, most of their beaches are what they call shingle, flat rocks, a pebble up to uh, granular and even bigger sizes. You may have heard of my guest, though his reputation is connected to his nom de plume, so to speak. If you're a beach lover, you've certainly heard his name. Most people call him Dr. Beach. Every year, Dr. Beach creates a list of the 10 best beaches in the country based on a curated list that he has created for this specific purpose. He's not making things up based on personal preference. Dr. Beach is an actual expert and an actual doctor. In reality, Dr. Beach is named Dr. Stephen Leatherman. I'm Stephen Leatherman, a professor at Florida International University, and I'm a coastal scientist. And... My specialty is beaches. How did you get into that field? Well, as a small child, uh, I grew up in North Carolina, Charlotte, uh, and red clay is what we had to play in, and I was always getting dirty, and my mom was always distressed about my clothes being soiled by the red clay. So she asked my dad to get me some sand. He says, he's an out, outdoors kid, you know, he's got to be outdoors. So <clears throat> my father uh, brought in a big dump truck of sand, which was... Uh, one delightful thing when I was about three or four years old, I still remember that day, and not just a little tiny sandbox, a whole dump truck, and they built a frame around it. I tell people I had the largest sandbox in Charlotte. 
I probably did. <laughs> and my neighborhood, all the people in my neighborhood came to play in the sand with me. And of course, I discovered water and sand makes sandcastles with sticks together. So I was making sandcastles and, and we just had a, lot, had a lot of fun doing that. And then when I was about five or six years old, I saw a beach for the first time ever. Uh, the closest beach was Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, from Charlotte, North Carolina. And we drove down there and stayed at my uncle's little place he had there for a week. And oh my goodness, when I saw the beach, it was the biggest sandbox in the world. My, <laughs> this is all that sand. And so I immediately, I brought my shovel with me and my little pail and immediately started making sandcastles at the next to the water because there's water right there. And uh, then I discovered, well, the water's warm. I loved water already, you know, I loved going to the swimming pools. I knew how to swim, but I'd only been in the swimming pool before that time. And so I discovered the water and it was wonderful. And I discovered waves. I'd never seen waves before. And I thought, wow, this is perfect. And, uh, and of course, uh, I loved seafood and fishing and boating and, and flying kites. It was all there. I'm sure if you're a Florida kid like me, this story feels so familiar to you. When I was a child, I would just sit and play on the beach and explore everything in front of me, from the sand, to the water, to the animals, to the waves, and, and the way they all blended together. It was fascinating to me. But Dr. Beach took that childhood passion and turned it into his career. Becoming Dr. Beach, however, that was an accident. Well, when I was a professor at the University of Maryland College Park in the Washington, D.C. area, I uh, taught a very popular course called Waves and Beaches. It filled up uh, with 250 students. It was one of the most popular courses on campus. Wow. And of course, everybody thought, oh, Waves and Beaches, that's going to be an easy A, right? <laughs> <laughs> they didn't realize there's some real science to it all. And uh, at any rate, I'd have 100 people on the waiting list. And I uh, would walk around with a wireless mic. Of course, it was a Monday morning class. And a lot of these, this is first year students, first time in college. And of course, they're out partying Sunday night. And they're heads were on the desk trying to sleep through my course. I won't let anybody sleep through my course. So I walked around with a wireless mic and tapped them on the shoulder, wake up or leave, you know? Yeah. And then what I would do is I had I had all these slides and, and videos and had a remote. So, uh, and I'd say things like, and that's going to be on the exam. And everybody, oh my gosh, they'd all wake up and they couldn't remember my name. So they started calling me Dr. Beach. No kidding. Yep, that's how it all got started. And then... <clears throat> As I say, this was a, uh, a science course. I guess they prefer to take my science course in physics or chemistry. So, uh, I, like I said, I just had a waiting list over 100, 150 trying to get in the course every semester. And so a number of journalism, uh, journalism students took my course, and one of them worked for one of these popular travel magazines in New York City and told the editor that I was the beach guru, the beach professor. And I knew everything about beaches. I knew a lot about beaches by then, for sure. I've been around quite a bit. And fortunately, uh, for the U.S. Department of Interior, I had done a survey of all the beaches in the United States and had been to every beach in the United States. Wow. For another reason, not to rank them, but to survey them. And I had 60,000 slides, and of course, that gave me a, uh, a great background, all my notes and everything. So anyway, this student told his editor, or former student told this editor of a travel magazine uh, in New York City that... Uh, I was a beach expert, and he called me up and said, uh, uh, Dr. Leatherman, uh, what are your top 10 beaches? And I said, based on what? He said, well, you're the beach guru. Uh, <laughs> tell me what they are. So <laughs> I, I thought, okay. So I just mentioned beaches I do and love, basically 10 of them. I was on my way to a trip to China within an hour, so I tried to get him off the phone as quickly as I could and really kind of forgot about the whole thing. 
three months later, I looked in my box, and there was this slick color uh, magazine, a travel magazine, uh, and and it says at the top of uh, best beaches. And I thought, well, I know a lot of something about beaches. Let's let's see what it says. I forgot all about the interview. And there it was. It wasn't really an article. It was what they call a sidebar. Yeah. And it had a list of beaches, and he, he numbered them according to when I mentioned them. And so the number one beach is the first one I mentioned. He said it was the number one beach. And it just blew up from there. Soon, Stephen was getting phone calls from across the country, from counties and cities wanting to be ranked higher. Lee County here in Florida gave Dr. Beach a call, asking him how Sanibel Island could go from number eight on that first list to number one. Other cities and counties called to complain, doubting Dr. Beach had ever visited their specific beach. Of course he had, he'd been everywhere, but what they really wanted was a rubric, a criteria that Dr. Beach was considering in his list. Dr. Beach went to prepare a list, but discovered something surprising. So for the next two years, I developed the criteria for beaches, and by the way, no one had ever rated beaches before. Uh, doing the scientific literature, I found out that there had been ratings of, of uh, rivers and somewhat of lakes, but never of beaches of all things. So I came up with 50 criteria to rate every beach. 50 criteria. So it has to do with sand, sand size, sand color. People want the finer wider beaches are the best and I have a category from one to five with five being the, 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 the highest so and then if you get into of course the three biggies are water quality people want clean water clean sand and beach safety but I got into vistas and uh, and uh, didn't rate hotels and restaurants that kind of stuff leave that to AAA and the rest of them but anyway 50 criteria and so a perfect beach would have a score of 250 the highest score I ever got was 243. I'm pretty tough, but uh, <laughs> fortunately in the United States, we have a lot of great beaches. And of course, Florida has 825 miles of good, sandy, good quality beaches, the most of any state that is swimmable beach, shall we say. I highly recommend you go look at Dr. Beach's criteria on his website. I've provided a link in the description. There are things being considered here that I would never even think of. There's obvious stuff, water temperature, amount of rain, beach width. He's also considering debris on the beach with pollution and garbage as a top concern, as well as noting public safety, whether that's crime in the area or lifeguards on the beach. When it comes to animals, Dr. Beach is a man after my own heart. Plenty of shorebirds gives the beach a higher mark. Excessive street noise or overcrowding gives you low marks. And as he just said, Florida's 825 miles of beach leave us more likely to gain high marks year by year. Pacific Coast beaches are not happy with Dr. Beach as he ranks swimming beaches, and many in the Pacific Northwest and in Maine are not really swimming beaches. That means many of the counties and cities in those states are none too pleased with Dr. Leatherman. Dr. Beach makes a top 10 list every year, noting the 10 beaches with the highest marks. Florida has been home to the best beach many times, especially in the last few years. Siesta Key made number one in 2017, Grayton Beach State Park made number one in 2020, but we are constantly trading the top spot with our Pacific Coast rival and sister state, the incomparable Hawaiian Islands, with their unbeatable beaches. Hawaii won again this year with Hapuna Beach State Park on the Big Island in Hawaii taking the number one spot. Steven says that part of what continues to put Florida lower on the list is that we still have smoking on the beaches in Florida. Hawaii outlawed smoking in state parks and beaches in 2015. But don't count Florida out. We made the top 10 list of 2021 
twice this year. Our top beaches this year are St. George Island State Park, which is in the Panhandle, and Caledesi Island State Park. Well, St. George Island State Park is uh, in the Florida Panhandle, and of course has that beautiful uh, sand that we, we talked about. When I first saw the sand, I thought it was snow or something. This can't be snow. It was just so so white. It's, it's quartz, quartz crystal, and of course the water is emerald green, and, and unless there's a storm brewing or a frontal system coming through, uh, don't bring your surfboard. Uh, so it's very safe beach. So again, the three things I look for most important are clean water, clean sand, and safe beach, and they have that in, in straight A's, I mean, you know, top ratings. And also, this is a beach where you can go for miles and miles and be on your own and ramble, and they have big sand dunes and coastal ponds behind, so there's a lot of wildlife there, a lot of nature. And so, uh, you know, it's not, the only thing is, if you want to stay in a hotel, you can camp there, but if you stay in a hotel, you got to go back on the main, mainland. There, there are places to stay, so it's just really got all the, characteristics that I look for in a beach and it's a safe place and a beautiful place and just a lovely environment. Well, Caledesi is kind of a surprise to a lot of people. You get there by, there are no roads to it uh, or bridges directly to it. So you, what I do is I go to Honeymoon Island just to the north and take the pedestrian ferry across and you land on the bay side with mangroves everywhere and a lot of ospreys and, and uh all sorts of uh, wildlife there, which is really something to see, and I kind of wish I'd had a kayak with me so I could go through there, but at any rate, then you come to the island, and it has a snack bar with ice cream and all sorts of things, you know, sandwiches and whatnot, and you go on the boardwalk to the beach, and once you get there, you can't believe you're in the Tampa area, because <laughs> you feel like you're, you're uh, this is a real getaway island is what it is, and again, the water is just really warm, and, and, and the sand is really uh, white, white uh, quartz crystal so it's, it's just another beautiful area in florida but uh again a perfect area uh, again a getaway beach beach you go for the day a day visit but uh what a great visit Dr. Beach and I talked before I got to see Caledesi with my own eyes, and now that I've been, I can attest to everything he has noted here. Osprey zoom overhead, mangroves surround the waterways, and the snack bar delivered a surprisingly delicious fish sandwich before I returned to Honeymoon Island. I could have spent my entire day sitting right there on Caledesi, taking in the ocean and the sand and the peace that can be found on our Gulf Coast. But there was one problem. A problem likely not present when Dr. Beach paid his most recent visit to Caledesi. It is actually one of the things on his criteria for what makes a good beach. An excessive amount of what I saw there actually lowers the beach's score. It's a phenomenon called red tide. And along Florida's Gulf Coast this summer, it is reaching the point of crisis. My references for this segment of the episode come from the Tampa Bay Times. Their reporting over there has been extensive and exceptional. Their environmental reporting is top tier. They are covering every turn of this story. You have to go read their articles. I will include some links to the writing they've done in the episode description. Zachary T. Sampson's article on the basics of Red Tide is extremely illuminating on what precisely the problem is. Red Tide is essentially an algae that is always present in the Gulf of Mexico. When it builds up, it begins to cause significant harm, which leads to the phenomenon called Red Tide. This spring, a fertilizer plant in Manatee County called Piney Point began to leak, sending contaminants into the local water. It was an environmental disaster with outcomes we are still seeing unfold. 
This is from Samson's article, quote, more than 200 million gallons of polluted water was dumped into the bay, end quote. There was loads of nitrogen in that pollution, and the algae feeds dramatically on said nitrogen. Now, we are not entirely sure if that nitrogen is the one and only, if any, of the cause of this increased red tide, but many are drawing the connection. The Gulf of Mexico is experiencing a huge amount of red tide kills, to a degree we haven't seen in some years. A lack of fresh water from dry months and intense winds from the south also may be contributing to the presence of red tide, but we are still exploring all of the things that are causing this crisis. Now, the way that red tide manifests is its most disturbing feature. It kills fish, and a lot of them. When I arrived to Caladesi, alongside the incredible waters, the abundant flora, and the soft sand, there was dead fish. Walking down the beach, every few feet you'd see a dead fish lying in the sand. That is red tide, making itself known. Jake Sheridan from the Tampa Bay Times reports, quote, Pinellas County has now collected 791 tons of dead marine life found along St. Petersburg and the county's beaches. More than 600 tons likely came from St. Petersburg's shores. End quote. Towns along the Gulf of Mexico are overwhelmed by the smell of rotting fish drifting over their coastal towns. It can affect humans, leading to irritable eyes, nose, and throat, and can have an impact on those who are immunocompromised. Experts are reminding us that indeed, red tide is not something new, and it can come in waves. It can arrive quickly and fade just as fast, but when it's happening in your town, to an intense level, and you can point with some comfort to the possible human cause, it's hard to not be frustrated and frightened. Environmental groups have been calling for Governor Ron DeSantis to officially name the red tide an emergency, which would increase funding and manpower. Our beaches, which are part of our identity as a state, are facing a health crisis, a governmental crisis, an economic crisis, and an environmental crisis, all in one algae bloom. Even our most beautiful beaches are not spared from the chaos in our ecosystem. I have been doing this show for three years. When I started it in the summer of 2018, Florida was in the middle of a blue-green algae crisis, another dangerous bacteria that was affecting our waterways, our flora and fauna, and our beaches. The problems on our Florida beaches seem to be a clear indication of the consequences of this climate emergency we are facing. And I think, on top of that, we have a subconscious problem about how we think of beaches. Remember what Dr. Stephen Leatherman said, before he made the criteria for analyzing beaches, there wasn't one for examining them in such a way. I asked him if there's a reason for that, and he corrects me. People do care about beaches. According to a survey by the Park Service in 2012, quote, Florida beaches have 70 times more tourist visits than visits to Yellowstone, Yosemite, and the Grand Canyon combined, end quote. People go to our beaches, but Dr. Leatherman says that there is a misconception about them. Some people brush them off, saying they are just for fun, for folks laying out and tanning for sandcastles and volleyball games, but they are ecosystems. The sands are teeming with life, from sea turtles to ants, from seagulls to mollusks, from crabs to gopher tortoises, and human beings as well. Yes, they are the most popular vacation spot in the world, but they are ecosystems. They are the edge of our ecosystem in Florida, the barrier that protects us from the rising tides. They need to be respected, cared for, and protected. Dr. Stephen Leatherman says there is something biological about our persistent love of beaches. 
Well, I think beaches are, we, you know, for instance, we have salt water in our veins. They're kind of primordial urge, I think. <laughs> so, well, you know, all, all animals came out of the ocean, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's going a long way back. But beyond all that, I mean, you're at the beach, and most of us come from urban areas now, and you're hemmed in with your view of buildings and asphalt and concrete and maybe a few trees. But you go to the beach, look at that vista. You just see forever, you know, and and it's like a it's like an experience where you're really communicating with nature, and you're not there's no visual obstructions, nothing in your way to enjoy it. You can sit there, and of course, I love to hear the watch the waves break, and hear the hear the sound, smell the salty air. It's part of being human to go seeking out our coasts. It's also natural to be afraid that they are at risk and that if we don't do something to prevent this climate emergency from getting any worse, there may be no more beaches for us to return to. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and the past three years of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you are here, whether you are someone who has been here from the very beginning or someone who has just found this show in the last year or even this season. It means the world to me that every single one of you are here. I did not expect that anybody would hear this show, let alone the hundreds who have since it was created. It it, it seriously means the world to me. It has changed my life. It has been an incredible three years making this show, and I I'm so very looking forward to everything that comes next. If you're looking for a good place to jump in, you don't need to go back to that episode at the very beginning. It's been three years. It's a little outdated, and I think I've gotten a lot better at making a show than I was back then. But if you want to listen to another anniversary episode, our episode from last year on Sanibel Island is so much fun. My guest, Emily Alfino, is one of the best. I'm hoping to have her on the show again this season. So go back and give our two-year anniversary episode a listen. Thank you so much for listening to this show. Season 7 of Wait 5 Minutes is brought to you by A Trombo Creative. Turn your ideas and inspirations into a wearable reality. Go book your appointment at atrombocreative.com. And thank you again to A Trombo Creative for sponsoring this episode and season of Wait 5 Minutes. If you're looking for more Wait 5 Minutes, there is a website just for you. Go to WFMPod.com for transcripts of current episodes, additional photographs related to the stories, and photos from my trips around the state. I took a ton of beach photos in the last couple of weeks, including some on Caledesi, so go check those out. Head to WFMPod.com for more. You can now pick up Wait 5 Minutes merchandise at Cast and Clay on Etsy. Cast and Clay is run by one of my best friends, Sophie Aparicio, who designed each of these stickers alongside the rest of their catalog. We've got a Drink More Water sticker using photography from our friend Lauren Nix, a Wait 5 Minutes sticker in the shape of Florida, and a sticker featuring the show subtitle About Florida by a Floridian in a vintage citrus crate style. Grab them individually or as a set of three at Cast and Clay on Etsy. Head to the link in the description to pick up your WFM merch now. 
If you did enjoy this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review. It helps the show become more visible, and it means a lot to me. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me a message, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com. I'm looking for some episodes for next season, and you can follow my personal account on Twitter at WFMNick. I look forward to hearing from you. I'd like to give a very special thank you to Dr. Stephen Leatherman. He is an incredible scientist and a passionate beach lover. Go to his website to see more of his work. He is advocating for a no-smoking law on Florida's beaches. You can read more about that at his website. There is a link to that in the description. Thank you to Dr. Stephen Leatherman for all of your help. All the music in this episode was originally composed. All right. Next week is kind of a special episode. I hate to do two special ones back to back, but I just can't wait on this one anymore. It's technically my first return to a previous topic. See, back in that first year, the first two or three months of the show, I did an episode about one of my favorite topics in Florida, the skunk ape. And now it's time to do a return to skunk ape. I've spoken to an author who has written about some incredible skunk ape sightings in the Florida Keys, and I've also collected a few other stories from around the state, so this is a return to the legend of our very own Bigfoot. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself, be good to others, look into getting your vaccination if you are able, and please drink more water. Thank you for three amazing years. I literally could not have done it if it wasn't for you listening to every episode of this show. It means the world to me. I'm looking forward to this upcoming year of shows. I'll see you next Monday.